Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. Here at Promo Kitchen, we are proud to be partners with and members of PPAI, the sponsor of today's episode. Today's Promo Kitchen podcast is brought to you by Promotional Products Workweek, which takes place from May the 23rd to May the 27th this year. Promotional Products Workweek is an industry-wide celebration dedicated to increasing awareness, building your business, and uniting our entire industry with one mission, one purpose, and one voice. So from May the 23rd to the 27th, get together with your team, your peers, and your community to meet and greet, serve your community, advocate for the industry, and celebrate your customers and clients during Promotional Products Workweek. For more information, check out ppai.org slash events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm excited to welcome Chuck Fandos back to the program. Chuck was first on the podcast in May of 2012, so a repeat visit has been long overdue. Chuck is the founder of Gateway CDI, a prominent distributor based in St. Louis. He is also the CEO of Facilis, a leading industry software provider and technology-enabled buying group. In January of 2016, it was announced that UK-based distributor Brand Edition had acquired Gateway CDI. This got me thinking that there would be an opportunity to hear from Chuck as to why he sold Gateway, what process he went through to sell the company, and what advice he'd offer to entrepreneurs looking to sell their businesses. Chuck, thank you so much for doing this, and welcome back to the podcast, sir. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. And wow, I didn't realize it was four years. Time really flies. Yeah, I had to look it up. I was thinking 2012. Wow, I thought it was like, you know, last year, but... Yeah, me too. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be really special. You know, of course, in the last episode from four years ago, and we'll link to this in our show notes, you know, we have the opportunity to discuss what, you know, your perspectives on the industry, of course, as a distributor and service provider. But I think it'll be really special to dive into the sale of your business and to, to really jump into it. So with that, let's get to it. So, Chuck, can Great. you walk us through Gateway's company history? Sure. Gateway CDI was started as Gateway Promotions in 1988 in St. Louis. started with my wife and I. And we merged with a company, CDI, in 1996. And that's where the Gateway Promotions and CDI became Gateway CDI. We've specialized pretty much from early on in the company store or program side of the business, although we also do drop ship, and just continued to grow it over the years and reached about 28 years of business until we sold. And based in St. Louis, have about 75 employees, and that's a little history on us. So take me up into the present and why you felt it was the right time to sell now. It's interesting. I was in a conversation with someone this morning just on that topic on, you know, why do people feel it's the right time to sell? And I think the reasons can vary from people to people. One, age. 
you know, as you face retirement or what's the next step. I think that's one reason. I think for me, having kind of two careers with Facilis and Gateway and now Brand Edition, that was part of it. And then third, I think I was ready for a new group to begin to run the Gateway CDI part of it. And, you know, maybe we were ready for a new voice and I wanted other people to have an opportunity to. And you also wonder if you're a hockey coach or a baseball manager who's been running things for 25 plus years, are you losing your voice? Are people tuning you out? So kind of all that factored into it for me. I'm curious to dig into the last thing you just said there in terms of, you know, people tuning you out or starting to feel like there might be other people who can manage it. Was there a sense, Chuck, in the last couple of years where you felt like, hmm, this business isn't as fun as it was before? Or am I, you know, being too creative with my interpretation of that? I don't think so, but I knew that that day was coming, Mark, and I felt that I owed it to everybody here not to get to that point. And I was actually, and am actually, very excited about the business, excited about our capabilities here. We have a leadership team we brought on or elevated in the last 18 months who would begin to run things day to day. And we thought that they were ready to take the next step and that and what I was doing with Facilis and the fact that we were approached, you know, all that kind of tied in. I, I mean, it's a uh, existential decision. It's a logistics decision. It's a career decision. There's a lot of emotion wrapped up in that. Yeah. Well, that leads me to my next question. I'm curious to explore the emotional side to it. Was it really hard, gut-wrenching to sell the business or was it, you know, time to go and move on to the next thing? You know, emotions come in waves. I think logically, you know, your head and your heart kind of compete here. I think logically it was the right thing to do. I think emotionally it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean you don't have pangs of, oh my God, what am I doing or what did I just do? But looking back on it, it was the right emotional decision and it was the right mental or logical decision. I will say, too, that... We had had conversations over the years with different folks who were interested in acquiring us. And I think that the first time you go through this process, it's a lot more emotional because it's new. You don't know what's coming. You're not sure where it's going. But after you've talked with people maybe three or four times and you've, you've kind of taken additional steps each time, you get more comfortable with it and it becomes more logical and less emotional because you know what's around the next corner, if that makes sense. Right. I'm not sure if you can remember this, but can you recount the first time you were approached? What was the most emotional part of that experience that then became less emotional in the subsequent time? So an example of that could be what you were initially offered and you might have been emotionally you know, excited or not excited about that. I'm curious to understand that emotion the very first time that you were approached. Yeah, I think the emotion comes in as a business owner. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of emotion. And you place an intrinsic internal value on the company. That is often not linked to reality. But you just say, well, God, we're great people and we run a great company. And why wouldn't somebody just really want to overwhelm us and overpay for it and realize the value of that. And I think you begin to realize as you go through the process a few times 
that that's one side of it, but the other side of it is, you know, yeah, I'm interested in what you've done in the past, but I'm more interested in a return on investment and where we're going looking forward. And that is a much more non-emotional and financial and metric-based decision where I think you get sellers being emotional and buyers being totally detached from emotion as they should be. And how do you find that space in the middle? Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, we're going to get to that in just a second. I want to make sure that I ask you about your acquirer brand edition. They may not be as well known in the US or the North American market, but can you tell us a little bit about who they are and what they're all about? Sure. Brand Edition's based in Manchester, England in the UK, largest distributor in Europe, and have been in business as Brand Edition for, I think, about four years. And prior to that, they had been part of the group that owned 4imprint in the US, and they spun off. And now, as we stand, we have North American footprint, European footprint in multiple locations in Europe, and an Asian footprint, not just from a sourcing point of view, but sales and distribution inside China, which is, I think, very unique. Wow. And what role are you playing right now at Brand Edition? Well, I'm part of the leadership team of Brand Edition, but my primary role is to run the U.S. business as it fits in with the rest of the global business. Got it. Got it. Okay. Why don't we jump into some of the numbers side and the process that you went through to sell the company. Can you talk a little bit about how the business was valued, specific ratios that might have been involved in the calculation of the value of the business? Sure. So I think the valuation is based differently on the distributor side than it might be on the supplier side. So we were, as a relatively large distributor, based on a EBITDA multiple. Okay. EBITDA is earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. So typically, a buyer will look at what's your net income and then adding back in interest, depreciations, or other irregular expenses and saying that we will buy you out at a multiple of that amount. And those multiples range literally anywhere from 2 to 10 based on size, based on, you know, if you have programs, how many contracts you have and when they're due up, based on the concentration of your business, meaning how much business are you doing with how many customers, based on what the future looks like. So, so they value it based on what you've done in the past, but they pay you based on what you're going to do in the future, if that makes sense. Right. I know. I understand. And you mentioned the idea of this multiple being at a low end of two times all the way up to around 10. What are some of the specific things that you learned throughout the process that get you closer to 10 and further away from two? Well, uh, 10 probably doesn't exist in our industry because if you look at financial buyers or private equity, they're looking for companies that are doing 17, 20, 25% EBITDA. I'd say our industry ranges from 0 to 10%. So the EBITDA multiple means a lot, and that EBITDA multiple factors in not only how much business you do, but how efficiently you run that business. So, right. you know, how your orders flow through, what your cost of labor is, you know, how expensive your overhead is, all of those things. So 
the more profit you can do as a percentage on each dollar of sale, the more you're worth as a company is right. the short answer. Sure. And then you throw in things that you mentioned before, like if you are a business that's where your programs are locked down on multi-year contracts, that's going to tend to generate a higher purchase price than a ad hoc custom business with no contracts, for example. Yeah, correct. And if you get into a custom business or a dropship business, then there's other factors like how many salespeople do you have? What type of contracts do they have? Yep. Could they just walk away and take their business with them? And if you're a buyer, you're not going to want to pay for that, assuming it's going to stay when you have no control over it stays, whether it stays or not. So there's a lot of time in due diligence trying to figure out what future cash flows look like and then figuring out how to pay on that. So I would guess in most distributor sales, there's earnout periods as well that you say X is going to happen, but what if you say you're going to make a million dollars next year and you make 300000 right. As a buyer, I have to protect against that somehow, some way. Right. Walk me through the due diligence process that you went through. How long did it take? What was involved from the initial encounter to the final sale? For us, I would say that in most cases, what would happen in an acquisition or a transaction is both parties would sign a letter of agreement that outlined the broad details of the purchase, multiples, how long key management are going to stay, contracts for them, et cetera, and then you go through a due diligence phase that could probably be anywhere from six weeks to three months. We were able to get ours done in about six weeks, and there's a lot. Now, again, I think it also depends on who you're selling to. If you're selling to another distributor who is privately held, your due diligence level is probably a little less strenuous than it might be if you sell to a company that is owned by private equity that runs kind of a model or scenario that they go through. So we went through, because Branded Edition is private equity owned, we went through a pretty detailed due diligence process. Every employment agreement, every contract we have, every lease, even on a copier, you know, anything we do, they wanted to see. And there was a lot of detail there. And it's, Kind of like going to three or four doctors at the same time and having them poking and prodding various parts of your body. <laughs> Did you enjoy the poking and the prodding? It was good to see it. It was something I had never been through before, Mark, so I enjoyed seeing it. It was a lot of work, a lot of detail, a lot of data that had to be provided. Now that I've been through it once, I don't know if I need to see it again. But I, I did enjoy the, the change or the new learning experience that I went through. Right, right. That's so fascinating. But, but you know, you're, you're not going to pull the wool over somebody's eyes if you're trying to sell your business and hide something. It's going to come out. Right. And, and I think it hopefully fits my personality. Chris Lee, the CEO of Brand Edition, and I had a very good relationship. And we were open and honest with each other that he knew what he was going to find before he started looking. And I think that's better to try and pull the wool over somebody's eyes on either side. Does it work and does it make for a, a good long-term relationship going forward? Right, right. And are you in the process right now of uh, an earnout or an agreement that 
necessitates you to stick around for three or four years? Like, is that by choice or would you, if you had your druthers, would you be doing Facilis full time? Well, I think that almost every deal is going to want management to stick around. Look, if, if you're buying a company, you're buying the value of that company's business, but you're also buying its culture and its leadership group. So yeah. part of a deal being at closing and part being earn out with employment agreements attached to it makes a lot of sense. Mine's open-ended, but I am going to stick around for a while, and I think that's really common that to think that you're going to sell a business and walk away with everything on day one and have no responsibilities just isn't going to happen. So if you think you want to sell your business three years from now or you want to be out of the business in three years, you really got to sell it two or three years ahead of that before you can actually walk away, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's a tail to the sale. Yeah, absolutely. I think it makes perfect sense. And as you say, a buyer doesn't want to buy something and all of a sudden the culture and all the loyalty to the former owner walk out the door as soon as the former owner walks out the door. Yeah, because that owner is the liaison between the past, the present, and the future. Yeah, absolutely. And you really need that continuity in there. But again, what I would tell a distributor or a supplier if you're interested in selling or you're interested in saying that in three years I want to be out of a job, well, you better look to try and sell today. Yeah, good point. So, Chuck, what are the three most important things to consider when selling your distributor business? I think that the first one's emotional. Are you ready? Yeah. Are you ready not to be the boss? Or are you ready to go to the next chapter of your life? Are you ready to walk away from probably something you've built and have a lot of blood, sweat, and tears? So, I think you got to answer that question first. Secondly, a big part of any sale is what's the value or what's the status of your balance sheet? And you got to have your balance sheet in line. You can't have a lot of debt on your balance sheet. You can't have a lot of debt items on the balance sheet because that's part of any deal that you have that you've got to have a clean balance sheet. And then third, you got to think realistically about what does the future look like if you're the buyer, meaning putting on the other hat. What does the future look like? Gee, well, we just lost the big contract, so we lost X percent of our sales, or so-and-so is getting ready to retire in a year, so that's not going to be there. So you got to be realistic about what the future looks like, and that's kind of the three things I would recommend people look at. Right, right. That's fantastic advice. So knowing what you know now, Chuck, what might you have done differently in the early years of building Gateway CDI? That's an interesting question. I think that selling or the cycle of business ownership goes through probably three different periods. And I'll be curious your take on this, Mark. One, when you first start a business, you reinvest everything. You know, you, you eat ramen noodles, you eat macaroni and cheese, you, you know, you drink cheap wine. Yeah. Everything you have goes back into the company because you're trying to add services, you're trying to add clients, you're trying to add people, and it's the reinvestment phase. Then you get into kind of the middle phase where you go, okay, I don't think we're going to starve. I think we're an ongoing concern now. Now I really want to maximize earnings and begin to take some money off of the table 
on a yearly basis because there is no guarantee that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And I always looked at it once I got through that first phase to say, maybe I'm not going to sell my business down the road. Maybe I just want to sell a little bit of it every year and take a little more than I think I should to put away so that if I don't sell, I've got a plan B for retirement or the next phase of life. Right. And then the third phase, when you think you're getting close to selling, is you don't take as much money out, you build up your balance sheet, you get everything in order that you need to make you more saleable, you invest more in new business development, things like that, so that when you're ready to sell, it's in the best possible shape that it can be. I'd be curious with you and maybe right sleeves a better analogy, I would guess you're maybe in phase two if you've looked at it that way. I don't know. Yeah, it's a great way to, to put it. And of course, you know, in our case, we have the two businesses and we often refer to both businesses like one as this adult, you know, it's like a college age adult, like knows what it's doing, has been successful, is sort of going off into the future with gusto. And then we've got this, you know, upstart, you know, I love the child analogies when we were three young kids. So we often think about it this way, you know, it's certainly not a baby, but is at that stage where it's in that growth area, maybe a little bit immature at times, lots of fun, frustrating too. <laughs> so we've got these two businesses that are very, very different. But when you specifically referring to right sleeve, I think that what we've tried to do, and believe me, as I say this, Chuck, I am a student of yours. I am not a teacher of yours. So when I say any of this. That I think for me and Catherine, we always wanted to create a business that could stand on its two feet without the founders specifically driving the sales. So in my case, when I started the company in the late 90s, I was the sole salesperson. I was the sole personality. Customers understood that I was the guy who was going to sell them the product and I was also going to deliver the product and my word was everything. And I didn't really want that to be the case for the foreseeable future because I knew that the business value would be just simply wrapped up in my personality and my role. So as you say, this kind of second phase of the business has been all about creating that infrastructure, whether it's operations or whether it's culture or whether it's sales processes, whether it's commissions, whatever the case may be, such that I'm now rendered basically irrelevant. So that's really the phase that we find ourselves at right now. And I suppose if I put my entrepreneurial hat on, I would have said, well, I think that having a distributorship that can stand on its own two feet and doesn't necessarily require the day-to-day -day sales involvement of the founder, then that makes for, I think, a fun business to manage. It's also one that probably has a little bit more higher value and can stand on its own two feet. But again, I haven't sold that business, so, <laughs> so maybe you know, we'll revisit this in a few years if we ever go down that path. But as I listen to you, Chuck, here, I'm certainly taking a lot of mental notes because it's fascinating to see the journey that you've been on because you're certainly a few years ahead of where I am at right now. I think that I've seen distributors who have never taken any money out, and that's a mistake, and distributors who have taken so much money out their business has been unable to sustain any growth because they didn't have the funds to do it. Yeah. You got to find the right balance and you got to understand where you are in a cycle and where you want to be going forward. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, it's a great way of looking at it, but I can definitely identify with the with the macaroni and cheese and ramen noodles phase of the distributor business. 
And then also what's involved when you transition from being the sole owner salesperson to building a team around you. I mean, I don't know if this was your experience, Chuck, but I started out at age 23 out of my parents' house. I had zero overhead. I was making a good amount of money as someone with a relatively small portfolio, but I didn't have any overhead. And then, of course, when moving into an office space and then renovating it and then hiring a management team and salespeople and investing in technology and all that stuff, well, that's overhead that comes right out of your pocket. So you have to be doing that if you know that it's going to generate some significant return for you in the future. Otherwise, why would you do it? Yeah, well... Our path was very similar to yours, too, and you believe in yourself and you take a lot of risk, but the rewards can be great. Yeah, Uh, it's so interesting. So, Chuck, now that you've been through this and you're so much closer to this than I am, what's the state of the M&A market right now in 2016 for distributors? Is it a a positive environment to sell your business so-so or is it negative? I think it depends on size of the distributor. I would say that there is a lot of opportunity for large distributors to sell as an ongoing concern, and there's strategic buyers and there's financial buyers. Strategic would be people in the industry who are already there and looking to expand. Financial buyers would just be private equity companies that aren't necessarily tied to the industry, but they're looking to invest in a business. So The larger companies, I think, have some opportunities, but then you get into things like how much profitability do they have, how many salespeople do they have, what do their salespeople's contracts look like, et cetera, and the larger ones are going to trade on some kind of EBITDA multiple. The smaller distributors, there are certainly markets out there for them to sell in the industry. And I think that they're not selling on EBITDA as much as they're selling a book of business. Yep. And, you know, there are players in there that will not pay them necessarily, as I said, EBITDA, but maybe some valuation based on their gross margin. Yep. So that if you are a $2 million distributor at 30% gross margin, you might be worth, I don't know, 70 to 125 percent of that gross margin over time and you might get a percentage of it up front and then the balance over two or three years so or let's just use a million dollar distributor at a 30 percent gross margin let's say the value is 300,000 you might get a hundred thousand up front and then if it's a two-year earnout if you produce 300,000 again in gross margin in year two, you'll get another 100000 And then in year three, you can do the same. If you produce 400000 of gross margin, you might get more. But if you produce 200000 of gross margin, you get less so that the buyer is protected against your key salespeople leaving, yep. accounts leaving, et cetera. So I, I think the road forks for mid-sized to large versus small distributors pretty quickly on how they're valued. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I I think it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned that there's different markets and correct me if I'm wrong here, but that if you're listening to this and you're a smaller distributor, it feels like your options are to affiliate or to sell to one of the national accounts, like people like Halo and Geiger and Proforma, and there's a list of others. Whereas if you're a mid-sized or you're larger, 
then that's usually where you might be outside of the interest or financial ability of those national accounts. And that's when you start to look at either a larger distributor or a financial investor like a private equity firm. Is that right? Yeah, that's the way that I read it. And I think that there's two different paths you can take based on your size. Right. I'm curious because we've seen a lot of M&A activity on the supplier side. We haven't talked about that at all. This has been more focused on the distributor side. But do you see more acquisitions on the supplier side or the distributor side in the next three to five years? If so, what do you feel is driving this? I think it's going to be more on the supplier side. I think that in general, the businesses are a little bit larger by nature and easier to value. Right. I think that there's probably more investor money on the supplier side than the distributor side because the suppliers are more diversified from a customer base right. than distributors are. Yep. Um, I can't really comment on whether suppliers are more profitable than distributors are. I think if you ask me as a distributor, I'd say yes. If you ask the supplier, they'd say, oh, no, distributors make a lot more than you guys do. So <laughs> who knows there? But I think that technology and product safety and scale are driving the acquisitions more in the supplier side right. than the distributor side. That if you don't have the technology to compete, if you can't afford the compliance and you can't afford the huge trade show and catalog budgets, et cetera, it makes more sense for you to sell and your valuation is probably going to be a better valuation than a distributor might get. And so I'm curious to get your take on this, Chuck. Do you think this increased acquisition environment that we see in the industry, is, is that good or bad for the industry over the next couple of years? Citing specific examples of, you know, the Alpha Bodic merger or acquisition, I'm not sure which one it was, but and then you've got Prime buying Jetline, and you just have a lot of activity over the last couple of years. Is this going to be a good or a bad thing for us on the supply side? I tend to think that acquisition within reason is a good thing for the industry. I don't know what the number of distributors is, but let's say 20,000, and let's say there's 5,000 suppliers. I think both of those numbers are maybe more than the market needs. I think that acquisition on the supplier side, Mark, that makes suppliers better with product safety, offering better tools to distributors and their customers makes sense. But if we only have 10 suppliers and right. then there's no incentive for new and creative product and new and creative services, that's a bad thing. But boy, we're a long way from that. So I think the market is working in a mature industry right now, yep. and hopefully this acquisition will drive some innovation and better services. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that you know an analogy that I used a little while ago when speaking to someone about this was, was what you have in an old growth forest. So bear with me with this analogy, but if you're in an old growth forest with a lot of tall trees... You don't have a lot of sunlight that hits the forest floor, but when you have a tree that falls, or in this case, it might be through an acquisition within the industry, then you have more sunlight that hits the forest floor, which then means that there are smaller trees that are able to then grow and innovate. And well, I know that that might be a little bit of a funky analogy. I think that you have a lot of that within our industry. And if you walk around the PPAI Expo, for instance, you have the monster booths with the name brand suppliers that we all know. But every year, there's always these smaller people that are just popping up that have got really cool products, and 
they have an opportunity to grow and gain market share. And I think that there's within this industry, it's it's still chugging along quite well. Corporate North America or the global corporate market needs our products and services. And there's a lot of business to go around. And I think within that climate, you're always going to get newer, more innovative vendors that are popping up that compete alongside these larger vendors that may be focused less on innovation and more focused on scale and efficiency. And I think the market needs both of them, right? I agree. I, I mean, I think the market or any market needs change and needs regular change. And whether that change comes in acquisition or new people entering, I think change is really good. And as an industry, if we try and resist change, we're, we're being very foolish. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, Chuck, I've got one more question for you. You've been in the industry now for close to 30 years. What do the next 10 years look like for you? Well, the next 10 years for me, that's a, that's a great question because I've been talking, you know, I'm, I'm older than you, I'm 55 and talking to a lot of my friends about, gee, well, what's next and do you want to retire or what do you want to do? And you probably can't understand this now, but in 15 years you might. The only thing scarier than working too hard is not working at all. So right. <laughs> I, I think that for me, I'm going to be involved with Brand Edition because I love the distributor side. I'm very involved with Facilis, and I love where that's going. So I think I'll be involved in the industry and with both of these companies. I just would like to maybe get a little better work-life balance. That would be my goal. But I love the industry. I love the people. And for me to say, gee, I'm done and I'm not working anymore, I, I think I'd go crazy. Yeah, I agree. And I, while there are moments, so I'm 41, and while I feel that there are moments where I'd love to just throw it all away and go and retire on some beach because it's just so stressful, uh, <laughs> I usually will snap back to my senses and go, well, I love this. I, you know, I love being a parent of three young kids and I love having these two companies and I love the teams and, you know, despite that sometimes it can be frustrating. So I'm right along there with you, my friend. Yeah, and at the end of the day, we're in a great industry. We have the ability to work with great people. We're really blessed, and we love what we do. So, yeah, there are days when you go, damn, I wish I didn't have to do it, but I really enjoy it, and I know from our conversations, I know you do too. So I think we're all stuck in the industry for a while, and as we always say, it's like the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.